0: right and welcome back to another episode of geology on the rocks i am your host james the geologist and with me as always i have
1: brian baggan
0: how's it going brian
1: i'm oh, doing pretty well ah, doing it how again. are you ah, i'm i'm it, making yeah. it it's, it's <laughs> been a,
0: a super stressful stressful week this week it's it's crazy and my kids yeah, are screaming that's... downstairs just it it compounds <laughs> it <laughs> they can add the atmosphere right yeah <laughs> <laughs> the ambient background noise well, this yeah. week, um, I figured we'd uh, it. Is titled "My Sediments." Exactly, I figured it, it's a good starting place, or not a starting place, but it kind of compounds or piggybacks off of last week when we kind of got derailed a little bit with the oh with the <laughs> with the marl. I, I
1: do want to I want to apologize to our listeners. Got a little too happy with my old fashioned. They were delicious, but they they did get the best of me. So if I went a little too in depth on how much I hate marl. Uh, <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, I,
0: I feel like the entire time, like I was slowly watching you or hearing you in (laughs) And then I (laughs) I will let everyone know a little on the secret, or in on the editing, I edited about 45 minutes worth of... um, uh, it, uh, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it made it a little bit less. But so we're going to talk about sediments today. So we, I know we talked, uh, we got talked about the the limestones and the the calcite and the coccolithophores and all of that uh, fun stuff from last week. I decided we, well, I didn't decide we were lucky enough to have a guest with us today, and her name is Dr. Angela Olson. She is. Let's see here. She is a graduate of UTA with her bachelor's degree, and then she later went on to go get her PhD from UTA as well, and her dissertation was over atmospheric and ocean conditions that led up to Permian-Triassic extinction. Woo, that was, okay. Wow, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Okay, and then she's currently a professor of geology at Tarrant County College for the past five and a half years. And then when she has free time, or she was actually, she volunteered at the Arlington Archaeosaur site for 10 years until it closed in 2018, which is, I hope we get to talk on that a little bit. And then... What I she also added that she preps fossils at their herd museum in McKinney, right? Is that correct, Anthony?
2: Yeah, no, that is correct. yeah. Yay. when they're open, now we're closed during during COVID, we're just about to open back up again, or at yeah. least
1: the prep lab anyway. That's a cool place. I've been out there. And they had they had the dinosaur exhibit. Is that still a thing going on? Yeah,
2: they have um they have a mosasaur there and yeah. what I've mostly helped with I didn't get to help with the mosasaur, but there's some turtles and mm. it's really unique because we actually have some of the bones and the head from inside a prehistoric turtle and we have it opened up so you can see what is inside of a, it's actually a tortoise uh, looks like. It's pretty neat. And we also have a before and after or actually a small turtle that you can see the unprepped side along with the prep side you can see how much work it goes into fixing up those fossils so they can be displayed at museums
0: i think it's fine so how did how did you even get into something like that i find that absolutely fantastic
2: well i'll try to make it a short story as possible but it really started with dr Derek Maine, who ran the arlington archivist site and i been working with him when he was a grad student at UTA since 2008 at the Arkosaurus site, and he needed help with prep with the fossils. And at that time, I was too busy with school. You know, I just did the weekend digging out in the dirt outside. I enjoyed that. But my dad, who was retired, kind of needed some a new hobby. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and so it's my dad that he needed to come up to UTA and work with Dr. Main who was you know, a PhD student at the time to learn how to prep these fossils. And he loved it so much he drug my mom into it. So I got my mom and dad into <laughs> prepping the fossils and of course that kind of drugged me into it. I was used to excavating them. And when I uh, graduated UTA, they kind of backed off unfortunately, Dr. Main also passed away. So that kind of put a sink into things. But the McKinney Museum, the, the lady who runs the volunteers at the McKinney Museum also was familiar with the Arlington Archosaur site. And when she found out that my parents had worked on a turtle that we found at the Arlington Arcosaur site, they recruited my parents and therefore I got recruited as well to help prep out. So it really was, just a bunch of coincidence, not formal training, but more of, well, let's see if this works, see if that works. And then over time you get fairly good at it.
0: So that's amazing. So whenever you prep, I know this is kind of off the topic, but so whenever you prep fossils, like I, in my head, I just, I don't, I don't really know what I would expect. So does it just like chip off and then you just see this exposed and you kind of just let it take you where it takes you kind of like an art rendition
2: or something? It, it really is. It depends on what the fossil is encased in. Mm-hmm. My dad is largely responsible for finding a really neat new method uh, using ultraviolet light. Of course, we have to use oh. high protection to do that but with certain rock formations using ultraviolet light you can really see the difference between the matrix and the bone and then from there a lot of times we use a like dental equipment dental kit okay. to chip at it or you can there's actually some place called Paleo Tools that has a little bit sharper edges on their tools uh, if it's really hard rock like a hard sandstone, you might actually have to use an air scribe to get that off the bone they're actually working on a, a part of of a, a oh I'm not sure how I'm supposed to say but I'll say anyway that's, a mammoth and this is actually wow. a real bone instead of fossilized bone so this is more of a very brush and maybe a wooden toothpick in order to clean those up so
1: that's awesome you that, use uh, go ahead Jane. oh no 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 no
0: no you go ahead
1: oh seriously i curious, do you all do like any acid treatments I mean if like if you are in a sandstone would you use hydrofluoric or something to take care of the silica or how would you Uh,
2: yeah we we don't really use in in this lab we don't use a lot of acid mostly because it's not a highly sophisticated lab so and it's all run by volunteers no one gets paid to do these fossils so it's kind of come if you want to learn and, and we'll teach you the best that we can so We do use some acetone. Sometimes we'll use some vinegar, but we have to be careful with that because if you're dealing with calcium carbonate, of course, that's going to hurt the bone or the shell if that's present we use something called boot bar which is a glue that's <laughs> <laughs> stuff to work with and occasionally we'll have to coat it with that glue to kind of protect it after it's prepped so but right now i do believe the samples that we have at the uh herd museum uh, are they're encasing glass you can't handle them and and they're uh they're pretty sturdy but if they were touched a lot, they would probably deteriorate. Hmm.
0: That's That still blows my mind because, I mean, I feel like, well, at least you gave us some kind of insight because I do feel like some people are just like, well, I think you just put that together like a puzzle. Y'all don't really know what you're doing. So there is some kind of <laughs> yeah. rhyme or reason to it. Yes. Right? Yes,
2: there, there is. For example, my, my father who kind of leads the uh, restoration as far as the turtles are concerned, he will actually draw and mark all the pieces of the fossil as it's given to him so as it might accidentally break during prep or if they have to disassemble some parts in order to get it clean they know how to put it back together now in particular they they worked on uh, a turtle and some tortoises Uh, those have been pretty intact but some items that we get in are not intact so it really is a puzzle to go well where does this go and where does this piece go and of course, it always end up with something that's missing. I, I'd like to add that the, the tortoise that's on display, they actually had some high school students, an art teacher that recruited some of his art students and they made clay replica, replicas of some of the parts that were missing and they did an awesome job and they were painted so they matched the bone because there were a couple of parts of the tortoise that was missing was on display.
0: I think that that is really cool. That's really getting the uh, the outreach, too. You're getting younger people interested in the science. And then I think this also goes to show that how it's a multidisciplinary science, because I mean, not in do you have to know the fossil, but you do need some kind of biological reference, right, to kind of piece these things together when there are missing bones and what Oh, yes,
2: definitely. I mean, uh, the amount of research, and I can tell you, my parents know a lot more about turtles and tortoises than I ever will just because they've had to look up so many items to try to figure out what bone they're looking at or where it might go. So they're using present-day skeletons to try to put together this prehistoric. Um, They've also learned some things that, that, you know, the turtles, which I didn't know, but I I should, I guess, that some actually have their heads, instead of popping in and out, they actually move side to side. Oh,
1: really? the
2: prehistoric books interesting to see how they've evolved over time because they've been around for millions and millions of years so
0: that that, that's awesome so and then so so y'all actually found so what what what's the age of the uh, archaeology or the the dinosaur archosaur
2: site the archosaur site that was about i think we had it dated to about 94 million years old the bones that were Typically uh, mine you it
1: there. Is that the Woodbine Formation?
2: Yes, it is. Okay. It was coming out of the Woodbine. Look at you! Oh
0: man, y'all are y'all are smart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I just have to deal with that formation a lot at work. So. Hey. So. Okay, you it's said fun. you
0: were you said you were aternary in new geology today days. That was this summer. Yeah. Okay, that was the summer. So <laughs> if you yeah. didn't know, Angela, he he does geomorphology and deals with you 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 can say it again. I don't want to speak uh, for you, Brian. I
1: deal with mainly like engineering geology, but like this summer I did a lot of paleo flood mapping. It was pretty fun, but you do lack like the really ancient things. And I always wanted to go to the Arkosaur site. And is it fully closed or is it just by like invite only now?
2: It, it is fully closed. So yeah. when Dr. Main passed away, it ended up going to, it's owned by basically Viridian. Uh, yeah. That kind of hint as to where the location is <laughs> doesn't matter anymore. But Perot was in charge of the dig site and they did not renew that lease on the dig site as of 2018. So, wow. it we are not allowed back on the on the site, which is really a shame because I really think there was more to find in that site. And now pretty much anyone can walk up to it. So I'm sure it's getting filtered if they figured out what it was.
1: Well, maybe UTA could, you know, if they took all our tuition money for all those years, they could buy it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> That's
1: all, yeah. it's all gone.
0: It's, I guess then that leads us to, so can I tell y'all, so fossils, Right. Uh, yeah. I got my master's degree in petroleum geology, and we know that oil and gas, right, is the the, the ancient. Well, can I can I first tell you what I used to, like I I I promise it's embarrassing, but what I used to think oil and gas was up until even going into the 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 graduate degree, I thought it was actually dinosaurs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like I thought. Well, I need
0: mean, kind of to believe, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, fossil fuels. And I was like, oh it's just dinosaurs. And just, I don't know, this long held assumption in my head that I thought it was just, oh. But then just thinking about it, how silly it is, like, even after the fact, because you would have to have all of the dinosaurs die at one time, right? And then they would have to, uh, <laughs> like, not all die at the same time, but they'd have to die, like, in the same location and then be buried rapid enough. So that's my embarrassing fossil story.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't be embarrassed about that. I think there's a A lot of people that still think it comes from (laughs) dinosaurs.
0: No, yeah, and so, but it does. It comes from all the 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 microscopic organisms in the in the oceans. So that's a good place. Let's see where where are we on our run sheet. I love how we'll we'll get sidetracked, Angela. I'll just let you know that right now. Okay, so where to start? We wanted to talk about marine sediment. This is going to be broadly. Can I can I just say three since the the cosmogenous is such a small small fraction well, we'll add it into it so the, the the main types of sediment that we're going to or classify it as is going to come from the land and that's going to be our lithogenous sediment and then oh, we're going to yeah. have uh, creatures or uh, organisms marine organisms that are going to actually build their shells from the the ions in the water and if it's an animal that creates it is going to be considered biogenous now there's the third type that we're going to talk about, and it's called hydrogenous. And this is coming directly from the seawater chemistry itself. So it's the hydro. So this is going to be the dissolved component of the water. When the conditions are right, they will precipitate out. So precipitate just means it's going from dissolved into a solid. And then the last one, we constantly have uh, space dust uh, falling in, and we consider that cosmogenous. I think the a good example would be the, the KT boundary with that big meteor, right, that came or asteroid, mm. meteor, meteorite. I always get confused. <laughs> meteor, meteor. Maybe it falls
1: to Earth. Yeah. <laughs> meteor.
2: Yeah. If, think, if it's hit the Earth, it's a meteorite. If, if yeah. it's in the atmosphere,
1: it's a meteor. So void if it hasn't entered our
0: atmosphere, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's <very> <laughs> So sometimes uh, it does explode, but whenever it does I guess we could just talk briefly about the the cosmogenous right so whenever you have these massive explosions right so the the meteorite right when it hits okay. it collides it interacts with the the sediments that have already been there and we'll see this in the form of what well, they' they're called tectites right so when that asteroid hits mm-hmm. meteorite hits dang it I'm all over your place. <laughs> Hey, at least I've made it 17 minutes this time without being like, man, I'm going to fumble over my words. <laughs> so, but, but we can see this in the rock record, the KT boundary, right? So, Angela, would you consider, would they do they consider that thin layer at that KT boundary to be cosmogenous?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And i don't have a good answer for you on that one. Because actually what they're tracking is iridium. Mm-hmm. Certainly within there, you have to have some evidence of tectites in certain areas. But the iridium. Is is a metal from the meteorite, so mm-hmm. yeah. Oh. <laughs> I haven't really thought of that before. That's an excellent
0: question. <laughs> because, because I know there. Because at at the same time, so if any if people don't know, so there's this thin layer in the rock record around the world that that's the demarcation from the Cretaceous, which is the the K. So if if we ever hear us say KT boundary, the K is just meaning the Cretaceous, and the T is the Tertiary. So that goes into what? Uh, now I'm gonna stumble over my words. So the Paleo Messa. What am I doing? Tenzoic. Yeah, the Cenozoic. There we go, right? So the yeah. tertiary. Into the, so there's a boundary. So below this, this boundary, you have dinosaurs. Then you have this event that happened, and you have this thin layer in the rock record, and then you have no more dinosaurs above it. So it, that's right around when that meteorite hit, or it is when the meteorite hit, right? I don't want to just assumptions. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: right impact, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That was the, like the iridium was the nail in the coffin, because I know a lot of impact sites still have the quartz in the sediments, they would have changed then to coesite, sometimes stichivite. But they were like, "Oh well, you know." And there's a lot of debate about that. But then iridium showed up right in this boundary—a big excess of it. And correct me if I'm wrong about that. But that was kind of like, "Oh, hey, these guys that have been trying to prove this petrographically throughout the years—they they had—they had, they were onto something."
0: Yeah, because it was in that uh, shocked quartz, right? And that mm-hmm. was—and that can they see that iridium throughout the rock record, or is it just next to where that that uh, that meteorite impact site was? I
2: have to say that's the fascinating part of that story, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the scientist's name, but there was actually two groups of scientists that were studying this iridium layer that were completely separate. One of them was in Mexico, and one of them was from a European country. I can't remember. And somehow they got word of each other's research, and that's how they correlated this iridium layer. So when they started looking, you can actually find this iridium anywhere you find the the KT boundary around the world. But initially, these two scientists were working on this unusual layer separately and didn't realize that it was actually worldwide, but it is worldwide. There's actually part of it that can be found in the southern part of Texas, I want to say around mm-hmm. the Brazos River, where the Brazos River has some of the sediment. So that's fascinating. Um, I haven't seen it myself personally, but that's what I hear.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, that's why I was asking would you consider it cosmogenous, right? Because yeah. my understanding is when that impact hit, right, it sent a, a tsunami. Nine hundred feet high, right? Or was it nine hundred meters? Uh, I'm trying to see where my notes are. Ah, don't do this. Oh, yeah, nine hundred <laughs> meters. So there was a a, a, a wave that was three thousand feet that just encompassed the earth. But right, so it spent sent a whole bunch of space debris out into the atmosphere, and when it fell back, it kind of cooked, right? And then it kind of all settled down into that rock layer. Is that am I am I misinterpreting how this? You can see this uh, rock layer in the rock record
2: missing anything and, and I think with that point the iridium is it's not from this earth so I I do agree I think we have to call that cosmogenous sediment Woo, check
0: James boom <laughs> <laughs> boom all right so that's cosmogenous I think see we'll get we'll get a little derailed so lithogenous uh, anybody have anything that they want to include
1: um, it's important to know like the prefix for that like the lith is for rock and so those types of sediments come from basically the rocks on the continent. They can also come from ashfall, from volcanoes. And we have a lot of that in Texas in our shales or deep sea stuff. You'll have these layers that are real micaceous. And I did a little bit of work on that, like in the Eagle Ford Shale, and we dated them based off of zircon my favorite mineral again um Ooh. but uranium isotopes <laughs> and decaying the lead and so we were able that's where you get like your absolute dating it's kind of your check in the fossil record you double check it with your radiogenic stuff so that could also be a lithogenous sediment
0: okay so whenever so if you were in the shale so then you can radiometric date in sedimentary rock
1: oh yeah you can and that that's a very like that can get tricky when you're dealing with like rubidium strontium and some of the other stuff because what you're what those those sediments came from another rock like Mm -hmm. the especially ones that came in from a river you'll have these in major flooding areas you have what's called a sediment plume it'll kind of carry out in the sea and it'll settle down on top of the marine sediments and so that's where you'd get like you might have A bunch of carbonate sediments and then you have like different clays and silts and sometimes they're made of quartz but they came from a rock well upstream from the river and so when you're dating stuff you have to be careful and that's for like provenance provenance is okay we have these sediments where did they come from there's a lot of studies that try to pinpoint what rock did this come from and so that's that's another type yes
2: that sounds very interesting and
1: tedious
2: yes <laughs> yeah it is Maybe. I, I, yeah wow tracking sediments to the, their origins would be uh would be difficult but interesting that's basically
0: what our job as geologists is right ultimately is looking at the the rocks and the sediments what story is it telling us how can we Kind of piece what was going on at the time that this was deposited, and that's a good way to get a numerical date, right? Yeah. Okay,
2: okay. I mean, that's the favorite part about geology is figuring out the puzzle: is is how does everything fit together, and knowing that geology and oceanography, we don't have all the answers, so there's always a mystery that needs to be solved. So
0: I was talking to someone today. So I don't know why I, I was looking it up, but there are. 32,000 geologists in America right now. <laughs> so wow. I don't and I don't know why this is relevant to this conversation right now. But so there are what 320 30, 330 million Americans and so we are less than 1% of 1%. So we're just we're doing our best trying to figure things out as we go. We <laughs> so from the rock so what what do they tell us what i mean like why is this why why do we care why why should we care but looking at the sediments Right, so they're lithified. We're in the in the in the rock cycle now. So we've we've moved out of igneous rocks. We kind of touched on that the the last episode. So we're in the sedimentary rocks now. Right, so they're they're weathered down, and then they are eroded. They can undergo mechanical weathering, and that's just breaking the rocks into smaller pieces. And this is increasing the surface area to undergo chemical weathering. Chemical weathering can be done through a variety of different ways: hydrolysis, oxidation. Right, it's it's constantly breaking it down and down and then depending on the medium that it's being transported in it's going to be either high energy or low energy so this is going to help us determine the the type of environment it is based on this will lead to different types of sorting right am i am i going off base here yeah so sorting will tell us (laughs) right okay and then rounding will tell us how far it, it it's it's traveled. How long it's been in this medium? How long has it been traveling from when it was first deposited into, or not deposited, or on its way to be deposited? Right. So it can it can be deposited at any point during its journey to wherever. Oh, I guess that's a redundancy, right? What am I trying to say?
1: Well, it can. It can be reworked. Like I know that you're talking about energy systems it makes me think of fluvial environments. You know, river riverine deposits. And one of those is like a a braided system. So you have high energy coming down and you'll have a lot of gravel. But one thing really typical that we see, and we try to do a lot of borings and we're like, oh, you know, like this environment's very almost hostile, put it that way. It's a lot of flooding, but it can get reworked. So you may have some gravel and sands that are in. That were deposited at once, but then later they get reworked, picked up, back up, and they're flung out even further downstream. So our climate, how how much flooding we have and precipitation will directly influence how things are deposited, and even all the way out into marine areas. And I'm thinking of like turbidites here. I, I've only seen like two in my entire life, but like high energy and slope stability out there in in marine waters, you'll see this just massive, basically it's like if you had an underwater flood is what it looks like. And so when that stuff, when the sea dries up or it's been uplifted, you can see these structures that you're like, wow, like how did that happen? Well, it, it actually happened underwater but it was influenced on the climate and how much flooding we have.
0: Yeah, it, so it, it all it all tells a story, right? So that, that sediment it, it had a source, let's say you it was, because it's, it's lithogenous in nature, right? So it's going to yeah. start on the land. It is going to to go through mechanical weathering chemical weathering and it makes its way into the stream so it works its way down the stream it's rounding, it's, it's, it's constantly being eroded away, right? Kind of talked mm-hmm. about that last time, like the feldspar, so you add some, what is it, water and a little bit of carbon dioxide and it goes into, turns into clay, yeah. right? so it's constantly mm-hmm. undergoing and uh, changing if you will, and then it makes its way into the into the continental shelf, so there's, there's different provinces of the ocean so you have the continental shelf, then you have the deep ocean basin, and then you have the mid-ocean ridges, and all in between. So that's con- it's like it's this big, I guess, basin just for sedimentation to occur. But then you have the lithogenous building up on that shelf, and it kind of accumulates. And then due to the it being in the water, it's more dense. It finds its way down these submarine canyons, and then there you get your submarine fans and you get your turbidite deposits right is that kind of how it works and then there's different textures or that you can see in the rock record that It's like, oh, hey, this is a a turbidite, right? So it's going to have a fining upward sequence.
2: You always see that pattern with the turbidites where the the larger items are on the bottom and it gradually gets smaller and smaller until you can't see the individual grains at all. And it it often repeats with the turbidites, which Mm -hmm. you find fascinating. But it's all about the energy. So as the energy dissipates, it's going to drop out those those larger items, then that's pretty consistent on the shoreline. So that's, and, and, that, so. and
0: that's, and that's the good thing too. I mean, like as a, as I, cause I feel like as a geologist, there's just so much that you can account, you have to keep like balancing and it's, and, and I think that's why there's so many different kinds of fields of specialty within it because I, it's just so hard to keep in mind. All the different processes that can happen along the way right just like right in between that you could have like when you're saying the energy just imagine if you had this random huge boulder in the middle of the ocean and you're like well how in the (laughs) world did this huge because of the energy right so i mean like how would you describe that brian what how would how could you get a big boulder in the middle of the ocean basin
1: um I, i would assume that that boulder came from somewhere near shore so somewhere close proximity to the shoreline and yeah you had enough energy to move that out onto the, the continental shelf and, and it wouldn't it, i i would i don't know would you have just one boulder i would assume you have multiple well, i'm sure you would. uh this, this might be like one of the first ones that comes down and then you have the start finding up where you have pretty massive boulders and then you you decrease in grain size oh no no Um, but i'm
0: i'm asking you if there was just a just one random huge boulder in the middle of
1: the ocean (laughs) what would i say about that
0: (laughs) no i'm just saying like how would you account for that right so i mean you would need you would have to assume like so this 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 boulder would need a lot of something that could carry it out there right so that should be a clue what could carry something
2: out into the middle of the ocean uh I, I would guess if I saw a boulder in the middle of the ocean basin, it must have got dropped by an iceberg. Exactly,
1: <laughs> ah, glacial yeah. stuff. I don't, I don't know anything about that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but so you would need something that
0: could first carry that with it, and then sure, travel yeah. that distance. So I mean, I find like those little things to be interesting. So is it the Deep Blue Earth? Is that one of the videos that we watch in lab, Angela? So uh, blue the- planet, I think. Is that so yeah, there was one planet. where they were doing the submarine and they were looking and they actually found like the coral, coral reefs up in the uh, uh, the high latitudes but then all of a sudden you just started hearing like these this like doo-doo. And it was like something you don't think about with <laughs> icebergs is just the melting ice. The what's trapped up inside of it, right? So I think I don't yeah. think that they yeah. accounted for that either. So when you and I, I personally found it like I was like, oh man, that's so awesome. Which I don't think the students watching it really appreciated. But I was like, man, that is
2: freaking awesome. <laughs> and called- when I felt, but I like freaked out. Could you imagine being in a little tiny submersible and all of a sudden seeing the big rock <laughs> drop <laughs> out of nowhere? <laughs> <you're> like what? <laughs> that, that was landed on you. That was it. You yeah. know, <laughs> and like,
0: I, and I don't feel like anybody accounted for that whenever they were planning out
2: this thing. It them completely off guard. I don't think they were expecting that, but certainly a yeah. hazard. <laughs> yeah,
1: are those called erratics? I think would that still be considered an erratic if it's out in the ocean?
2: I think they have another term for it, and I can't think of it at the moment. I know
0: the. I think the the getting it out there is called rafting.
2: Rafting, yes, yeah. it's, it's called okay. rafting. Okay. Um, but it is like an erratic. It's just in the ocean. But I think they only refer to it as an erratic, when it's on land.
0: Okay. See, those are those are cool too. That just I'm just like,
2: how did that big boulder get there? <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> this does it not is, match everything else.
2: <laughs> having a background in in paleo oceanography and, and looking at the Permian, that's one of the things that when we're looking for climate change or trying to recreate a climate in the past, that we look for. We look for a dropstone. That's evidence of ice. Iceberg rafting that drops their sediments in the ocean basin so we can kind of look to recreate those temperatures in the climate. So we're getting a lot of information of in the past by looking at these ocean sediments and that's that's one of the things to look for is just these strange large rocks where they don't belong on the ocean floor
0: (laughs) yeah it's like so in the rock record why you're why is that there right right and i feel like so we can't i think we keep coming back to it is that it's the it's we keep what's the word good lord james hobbs the key uh, the present is key to the past right so if we can see what's happening today is we can uh, make insights into the future which then we can retrograde and be like oh well if we don't listen up this is what's going to happen to us based on past events too so it's constantly <laughs> I apologize it's, it's it's been a it's been a rough week so we'll just we'll just there you go just laugh just laugh man so it's yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on, I guess from that again, all of this stuff that we're looking at again is clues based on the what it actually is right So what I think is interesting too is right so the when we're looking at the lithogenous sediment we're I guess we're sl- we're kind of we' we are like how we describe it in its texture is going to be related to the grain size right so that's going to tell us the environment that it was in deposited in where it came from right angela so we we do a lab where we look at the lethargic sediment and you can clearly see the difference between at least beach sediments if you're even close to an active margin versus a passive margin
2: right yeah i i find that fascinating um it it never ceases to amaze me when I get a new sediment in from a beach I, I haven't visited. And you look at it, it's like, oh, well, this looks like bay sand. But then you look at it, you know, all of a sudden you see all these interesting minerals and you realize, well, this is a sand, but this is something else. So it tells you a little bit about what's nearby. Is there some metamorphic features nearby? You'll find some metamorphic rocks in those sediments or it, you know maybe you find some volcanics in there olivine is always gorgeous to look at and and we know that olivine weathers out fast so you have to have a volcano nearby of well, Sam, that's kind of boring at this point but <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, it, it, but it but it does but it does give you insight into i mean if you're looking at the sediment right so you can tell if it's if it's I guess at least in sandstone, right? If it's if it's a more of a a desert aeolian versus yeah, just based on yeah,
1: the by the rounding
2: by the rounding of it, yeah,
1: yeah, you would have like real angular fragments for any aeolian sediments.
2: They also tend to be if it's quartz, they tend to be a little bit frosty because they've had mm. some collisions, whereas the water water tends to smooth them out, and I, I find that kind of interesting as well. different mm.
1: and and you also see like a lot of heavy minerals on beach sand. You can even find like tourmalines and things that you. Then you're like, well, how, how did this get here? And to that point, mountain building and you'll have pegmatites, And so a lot of those really fancy minerals, like you'll have your tourmalines and your barrels, you can find those in your beach sands. And so that will look different than a, a court, nice, quartz, sandy beach. And so you, it makes you think. It makes you stop and, and realize, oh, well, not all beaches are the same.
0: I didn't know that.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I know they're <laughs> not, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't I didn't realize the, the amount that it can tell you by just looking under a microscope a little bit at the individual sediment and the, the mineral grains or lithics, if you will, right? So then, yeah, so it tells you a lot. So when we think about the, I guess, moving more outwards when it moves into the ocean basin, the continental margin, right? So these where you're really going to find uh, a lot of your lithogenous sediments. So again, the lithogenous meaning that it came from the previous rock. And that's going to be the the energy, right? So the 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 stream-dominated we've talked about. So that's going to be like the the rivers and coastal. So the rock fragments, the quartz, the quartz silt and the clay. But what we haven't talked about is one medium. It's very specific on the grain sizes that it, it can take with it. And that's the wind deposits, right? Mm-hmm. So like the yeah. Saharan yeah. dust. It not only does it... Tell us the story with the dust, right, too. But th- it also provides nutrients to other places in the world, right? So, I mean, I feel like that was the the big thing with over the summer. If you remember that big Saharan dust cloud that, that, that came and was like, we could see it here in North Texas and all throughout the United States, but not knowing much about it beforehand. I mean, like, I knew that you could see it from satellites, but I, I do know that it provides what the the nutrients in the Bahamas that they wouldn't normally get. I, am I mistaken on that? Or do we not know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no,
2: it it the nutrients coming from the river runoff, Yes, and that and the sediment certainly helps travel that down. But mostly, that's the so most of the nutrients I do believe are dissolved in in the water. So fertilizers, animal waste, all that fun stuff makes it to the ocean, and unfortunately, that makes too many nutrients, and the algae mm-hmm. goes nuts and starts killing things. Yeah, <laughs> high nitrate. Perfect <laughs> situation. So yeah <laughs> so then that then i feel like
0: that okay so then that would be a, a great segue into biogenous sediments
2: Ta-da. Ah way, Awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you see what I did
2: there? <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, so the, the two broad categories that, that we'll talk about for just the sake of this podcast. So the, 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 the two broad categories are going to be your calcium carbonate, which I know we've talked about in previous episodes, and silica. And I know we've talked about that in previous episodes. So you're going to have these organisms that are taking these ions from the water. There's there's a lot of ocean chemistry that has, that plays a lot into it that we could do on another episode but we're just going to talk about the sediments so it takes a calcium it takes a carbonate and or is it do they does it a bicarbonate that they take actually that they're taking out of the ocean
2: i think it's more of the carbonate because actually you know they're not directly extracting it but they're getting it from their processes as they as they take it in their bodies so Mm. i it's it's something to do with their digestive system they're able to
0: extract it. yeah so that they but sense. but yeah no I was just for clarification so then they're they're building their shells out with this calcium carbonate or the silica and then it's important too so from that we can start to mm-hmm. get an idea of where we're at latitude la, latitudinal is that it's not it's longitude longitudinal and latitude <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'm going to edit a lot of meat oh, out yeah. of this <laughs> So, yeah, so a lot of these sediments, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the nutrient availability too, right? And then also, it seems like the silicas, Angela, they, they grow or they tend to be in the cooler water environments.
2: Right. Um, most of the organisms that build their chest or their, their microscopic shells out of silica are going to be regulated to the higher latitudes or areas where we have the upwelling of that cold, deep water. That, that's their ideal environment. So, And then the warmer waters tend to have more of the calcium carbonate-based organisms with their tests and their shells.
1: Brian? Uh, No, I, I think that's a good point. <laughs> like, speaking of warmer waters, I mean, like global warming, we have, you know, there's a lot of concentration on our reefs dying out. And that's I, I believe that bleach is it's mainly overrun by calcium carbonate. I'm not sure if that's completely correct, but like all your beautiful reefs are turning that white color and they're dying off and it's just an excess... Of calcium carbonate due to the increased temperatures am i there, am i right in
0: that uh, so i think that they're they're ten- temperature dependent right and then they uh yeah they're what's the word i'm looking for their their uh symbiotic relationship with some sort of uh photosynthetic is,
1: zoo- it, is it
2: algae that they <laughs> <eat>? zoo- <laughs> zoo- <In-Tilly>.
1: zoo- <laughs> is it what zoo in is a type of
2: yeah. algae that has a symbiotic relationship with a lot of coral species yeah yeah if I could interject, it's a very strange relationship. Coral is temperature sensitive, so they, they do that between the degrees of 18 to 30 degrees Celsius. You, you start extending hotter than that, they start to die off. But some recent studies and I know this is kind of off subject but I, I find it fascinating is when those waters are starting to approach those upper limits, and pH plays a part in this as well, mm. but what happens is, and, and we can see this in plants, when it gets too hot from plants, they start to shut down. They don't produce as much fruit or flower. flowers. They don't photosynthesize as much because they're just trying to preserve themselves. And so these zooxanthellae are doing the same thing. When the water's getting too hot, it, it stresses them out, and they're not producing the nutrients that the coral needs. So basically the coral gets, well, they basically get pissed off at the zooxanthellae <laughs> and they will eject this algae and hoping that a more healthier version of the zooxanthellae will come and have coral. The problem is because it's dealing with the water temperature and also the pH that's in there. There isn't any new zoosan belly that that move into the coral to help save it, and therefore we see the bleaching. And yeah, of course, the, the extra temperatures are, are stressing not only the zoosan belly, but the coral themselves, because the warmer the temperatures and the lowering of the pH is going to cause more of that dissolution of the calcium carbonate mm-hmm. that. That builds
0: up their skeleton. That's a that's a fascinating. So the the whole yeah. carbonate the cycle with the acidification and then how it moves up and down. That I'm, I wish I I think on our thing our our Instagram. I'm gonna post a link to that that YouTube video that we watch in our classes. You know what I'm talking about, Angela. It, it doesn't make sense to the <laughs> listeners right now, but it makes sense where, it, where <laughs> it it perfectly highlights the that perfect balance between it going back and forth and the the carbonate stock and the buffering.
2: Yes, minute earth. I I love their their short series. They're very insightful and get right to the point. So, and they have a sense of humor. Can't go wrong with. Them.
0: So, uh, I I yeah. think last time we did talk about a lot about the the radiolarians, the the coccolithophores, the diatoms and what they're used for. Let's talk about let's talk about the carbonate or the the calcite compensation depth and what that is. So I mean I feel like so there is a point in the ocean where that the the calcium carbonate is uh, extremely undersaturated, right? So whenever you have this the the tests and the the shells that they fall down past a certain depth, that there there's just not enough calcium or carbonate in those waters, and it's going to start dissolving the shells. Right, so to, right. to get those deposits out there, right, that's why they're typically, I guess, more towards the mid-ocean ridges or the, the carbonate shelves, because they're a little bit shallower right. and warmer.
2: Yeah, right now, the, the lysocline, which is that boundary where all of a sudden calcium carbonate starts to dissolve quite quickly is about 4,500 meters, but that that can vary over time. Sometimes it's deeper and sometimes it's more shallow, but that that also makes paleoclimate studies and current studies of the ocean difficult, knowing that we can have a very protective ocean surface, but those calcium carbonate-based shells aren't going to actually reach those deep ocean basins because of that dissolution. So you're right, all we see is on the shallow carbonate shelves, continental margin areas, and the mid-ocean ridges. Now, they can get buried with other sediments, and that will help them, help protect them from that dissolution process, but that means they had to be above that liza to begin with and get buried in order to see them in the the ocean sediment.
0: And then for it to, I mean, if it were to accumulate, also you're going to need those large algal blooms too to concentrator right because i what is it that it can take so most of the in the deep sea so i I know we're all over the place but so for those you got to think these these things are microscopic in the case of the coccolithophores right you have to use a scanning electron microscope they're they're on the order of like two to twenty microns in diameter so they're Things. So when we think about right. the energy of the ocean too, so you have the uh, the surface currents, so where they are, they're blooming and dying, right? So they, they have like, they're going to transport quite a bit of difference, uh, uh, a distance away from the actual source too, right? It could take, <laughs> say something crazy, but like
2: 50,000 years? No. Am I crazy? Well, it depends on, you know, it depends on how, how strong of a current they get caught up in. They they say atmospheric got the, the same dust that travels. In the air, when it settles on the surface of the ocean, it can take upwards to 50 years before it finally ends up on. On the ocean basin, but a current—I mean, like we're talking like one one hundredth of a kilometer per hour. So this is a really weak current. It can travel a small little microscopic particle, you know, thousands and thousands, like over twenty thousand miles on its journey before it finally settles on the ocean floor. Maybe that's what so, I'm thinking. You know, yeah, I trip, d-
0: right. Yeah, no, I, d- I didn't mean fifty thousand years. I mean like fifty thousand miles. Like it it can travel oh, a really <laughs> far distance. Again, so I mean, I, I feel like this semester has. Felt like fifty thousand years, <laughs> and we're like six <laughs> weeks into it. <laughs> so it's these tiny particles. When we think of uh, the silicious ooze, when it mixes, when it finally makes its way to the bottom. So what you have to appreciate about that is the abundance that you would have to have falling at the same time, or it to accumulate in certain areas. What it, so that that's telling us something too that there's going to be some sort of nutrients. That is being provided for these things. So this is also another clue to give us a kind of a peek into the past, right? So you have you have these coastal uplands.
2: Yeah, I, w- I was just I was agreeing with you when we find these, you know, silicious deposits. And even calcium carbonate deposits you know, on a large scale, we know that's a highly productive ocean because you need a lot of nutrients to supply mm-hmm. a population so abundant that that dissolution process that's always happening in the ocean didn't dissolve every little evidence of their body, so to speak. So yeah, it's amazing.
0: Yeah and it's it's just, it's just one of the, those fascinating things that I I'm, I'm always blown blown away blown away from just how it all weaves in and out the because how the, you have these organisms that fall to the bottom, they're recycled by the, by the bacteria going down. And then it's like a, a compost on that bottom, deep ocean water that's circulating through. And then 5,000 years later, it surfaces somewhere and it provides nutrients somewhere else on the oceans for the, the new life. It's, I think it's, it's fascinating. And we can definitely get into that at some point with, the, with all of the... <laughs> I guess that's more of the processes, right, of how the ocean will move due to the Ekman transport and Ekman spiral and all of that and how it shifts due to the Coriolis effect and that, that that transport that shoots it at like 45 degrees, allowing for the thermocline to break and bring up all the nutrients. I don't want to get too off topic. Do we want to talk about, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I, I think it's fantastic. How about we talk about hydrogenous sediment?
2: Sure. I love hydrogen. Yeah. How about <laughs> some sediment?
0: Yeah. Evaporates. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or some Bahama sediment. I have to say, when we're teaching the class, I don't know about you, James, but I love talking about the ooids and the oolites. Because... I do I do
0: like ooids. And then I always I always so I'm like, so they they make these little balls, right? And then I I draw yeah. a whole bunch of these these ooids and then at the end I'll just put IDS ooids. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you show the video about the sands when they talk about what tends to be the nucleus of the ooids?
0: Yeah, and then they kind of it kind of gets kind of tricky where they they're like, oh, well, it could be the fecal pellets, therefore it's or like shrimp right. poop, and then they're like, oh, yeah. well, then that's biogenous. <laughs> but then we're like, no, yeah.
2: no. Uh, I love the look on their faces. Is did that video just say shrimp poop? <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. I had a I had a student one semester that happened to give me a bunch of sediments from Bahamas, thankfully. He didn't get to go to the Bahamas. His mom did but they brought me these three sands from the Bahamas. So I'm thankful for that. But I guess he was a little upset that his mom went to the Bahamas and didn't take him. So he told his mom that sands she was walking on were was created by shrimp So don't think it that much. <laughs> oh. Uh, so
0: the the they are they're coming straight from the 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 water itself so it has an abundance of this calcium and the carbonate in the water and then it's sloshing back and forth And it needs, much like when we were talking about the minerals, that it needs that seed to grow upon. I think it's one of the only sediments that are actually growing rather than being weathered away, right? Right,
2: right, because the the calcium carbonate is directly precipitating on the nucleus. And we should probably point out it may not be shrimp-based. It could be a small grain or a piece of shell or coral or something too. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's, it's actually growing inside. So they are still quite small, usually less than two millimeters.
0: The the most important takeaway from that, that it's actually coming from the water itself. It, it needs to be, it has to be saturated with the calcium carbonate. So where you would find that, again, yeah, it's right. going to be the, the, the warm, shallow sea is where you would find that. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, conversely... So that's coming out of the water. So a lot of these minerals or uh, I guess you would say sediments, the, the hydrogenous sediments, they're going to be in the form of these salts. So uh, your halite is coming from a super saturated, but it's, it's where you're going to get this, I guess, the idea of the environment. So, again, it's telling us clues. So if we see a whole bunch of salt or gypsum, we're going to know that uh, that evaporation is going to exceed precipitation.
1: Right.
2: Right. So in the case of the Ooze where we had the calcium carbonate precipitating, those waters are super saturated with calcium carbonate and that only occurs in quite warm environments, so the tropical type region. Your evaporite, well you have to have the evaporation that's exceeding precipitation in order for the more water to be evaporated into the atmosphere to leave those heavier salts behind to form the halite or the chips. Right. So yeah, like and, that's
1: also and, indicative of like a lagoonal environment. So you'll have a cut off from the sea, and over time the water will uh, evaporate out and you'll see that along bedding planes a lot. In shale you'll have these gypsum layers that are forming along the bedding planes and it'll be covered by more sediment later but you're like oh why why is it laid out like that? Well it was probably there was water there and then it evaporated enough to precipitate. Calcium will latch on to the sulfate anion yeah. and there you go. There you have
2: it. Yeah. You mentioned gypsum and you're talking about shale. I'm going to go back to the Arlington Arthosaur site. It, it, again, I started working on that when I was volunteering as, when I was an undergrad, and I kept working at the site even through my uh, working on my graduate degree, but there is a lot of shale. And there is a lot of gypsum. Matter of fact, most of the fossils that we find out there are coated in gypsum. And you're probably aware, but your listeners probably aren't, that one of the reasons why we see gypsum as an evaporite more so than the halite, though so we do tend to see a combination, is that's telling you that the waters were low in oxygen. So this is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why you also see the shale, because you have higher in organics, didn't have that whole decomposition happening in that particular water body. So I mean gypsum is, is kind of interesting when we look at oceanic conditions. See, I never
1: yeah. put those two together the <laughs> Yeah. So there's that's something we have our like psiliclassic shales, right? So the woodbine's a good example. You'll have we may call them like sometimes like a mudstone, but they I do have lamination, so we'll call them a shale. And so those are um, in a lagoonal environment. You'll have some shale, some, a lot of mud, silts, and clays yeah. will settle in. And that's, you know, I, I picture all these dinosaurs hanging out around the lagoon, which is probably <laughs> why you find, you know, <laughs> all these awesome fossils there. And they're just like hanging out in this beautiful lagoon, and then it dries up and you're left with this gypsum layer. And, and then it may get flooded again later, whether by tidal action or fluvial sediment. So it's, you can see it's, it's, uh, I know, and grapevine, that's also the woodvine formation. There's lots of gypsum inner beds throughout the whole thing. It's really neat.
0: And then I know whenever I was working, when I was doing my, my internship and when I worked in a soil lab, they would do core samples and they would actually test for sulfates. So I think the, the lime that they press over or they, they, whenever they are constructing the new roads like that white foam, I think is what... It's, it's so something that they do with the lime treatment the lime treatment it actually yeah. is uh it, it it doesn't react well with your with your sulfates the gypsum the gypsum seam that's it, another <laughs> reason why it's important to know the the the, the environments too right because if you have gypsum and you're trying to build a road Ah, uh, the two don't meet. So I think that it, it, if you're over, I think on 161 over by Los Colinas, where that road gets like the the President George <laughs> Bush Tollway, yep. where it kind of gets super wavy. That's that I, I think they didn't test properly, and that reacted with the. The gypsum, the sulfates in the gypsum, because uh, gypsum is CaSO4
1: <laughs>
2: times
0: 2H2O.
1: It's, okay, like yeah.
2: Civil engineers need to take geology. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and not the uh, other way <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Whenever I drive on that road, I have said it from like, damn gypsum because it's like <laughs> my car's just bouncing up and down you're right I do think engineers should I work with a lot of engineers and they're like I don't care how this got here this is just what we're going to do this is what makes sense I'm like well, you should probably learn why these are here and what it was made up of where <laughs> you started building
2: exactly I mean not only road failures but I I actually know of a, a, a dam or two failure because the, uh, the engineer didn't pay attention to the geologists
1: (laughs) oh yeah that's that's (laughs) primarily what i work on our dams and uh, luckily now they listen to us early so (laughs) damn
0: damn so then let's see i think we're getting uh to the end of it uh is there any other ones there's the phosphate the metal sulfides manganese nodules any of those uh excite anybody i'm
2: fascinated by the manganese nodules because you know that's one of the mysteries we don't know i mean these things grow so slowly. Over a thousand years, it might be one one thousandth of a millimeter. So, you know, like smaller than a speck of dust, hmm. but yet they've grown. So if, if, if you have a manganese nodule, that thing is probably literally a couple million years old or, you know, several thousand, hundred thousand years old in order to actually visually see it. Anyway, wow. I just find that fascinating. Not exactly sure how that works. I don't know if you two might have some insight on that one, but.
1: Is it? Do you find uh, like rhodochrosite? Because manganese carbonate would be rhodochrosite, I think.
2: Yeah, no. Um,
1: is it. that yeah? Is that something you see around these nodules? I've, I've never really seen one of them. So
2: The manganese nodules, we know they form in the ocean. and are mostly found in the ocean basins. And they're usually a combination mostly manganese with the iron. Sometimes they have little cobalt in it. But oh, wow. from what I understand is we don't really know what gets them growing. We do figure they started on a mid-ocean ridge and then grew over time as the ridge spread out. Mm -hmm. But we don't really understand exactly why. We do mine them on the continent, so where the ocean basin has been uplifted Exposed on the continents, we mine them for their their metal content. And there's been talk about wanting to mine them in the ocean, but all of them are in the deep ocean basin, so that's expensive and also international waters, which is, you know, a huge problem. <laughs> Who wants to spend all that money to take it from the ocean only to get robbed by ocean pirates, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so out there and international waters so so far they're not doing it but we'll see Uh, but they're talking that's a a good resource but it is definitely a limited resource it's it's a non-renewable resource once they're gone they're they're gone because they take thousands of years to develop
0: i'll post a picture on the instagram too of an ooid versus a manganese nodule they they look they're completely different right so the manganese is going to be some kind of iron manganese, and manganese being Mn, not magnesium, the Mg. Right, right. So, right. It, whereas you have that rocking back and forth, growing like a an, uh, a snowball and an avalanche, if you will, with the ooids, So, when you're in the deep ocean basin, there it's, there's you're not having that energy like sloshing right. it around. So, it is kind of, I think, fascinating. I mean, so does uh, do you? I feel like it has to do something kind of with the, the vents. It,
2: that's what I I yeah. hear to be stuffing i wonder if there's not a, an organism that's contributing to that because it takes so long to build them up so it, it's almost like it's extracting you know that the little bit of minerals that are in the deep ocean because again i think they started at the mid-ocean ridge but the fact that they take thousands of years to just get just this little tiny speck of dust or big, a little bit bigger than the speck of dust after a few thousand years yeah. There's something else involved there that we're not seeing and I I know they're studying it, but they haven't figured out that mystery.
0: It was I I think I recently read something where there's this bacteria that they didn't once account for that actually plays a lot in the, the sediments on the deep ocean floor. Am I crazy thinking that would not
2: surprise me. Usually we find some kind of microbe is aiding in, in some fascination. Kind of off subject, off subject. Yeah. Uh the, the Chikyu ship from Japan, when they did the deep core drilling, or they still are, I think they found microbes that were living, living like a thousand meters down into the sediments, which is just amazing. I don't know, is that a thousand feet or a thousand meters? I think it's a thousand meters. They were finding life in the sediments And it's just like, wow, how can you deal with those pressures? And there's food down there. That's amazing.
0: Haven't they found like bacteria living in like rock? at the subduction zones and they call them uh, it's one of my favorite words it's chemolithoautotroph so it's they they use chemosynthesis (laughs) and they so it's the chemosynthesis and they live off the rocks so it's like the chemolitho and they feed themselves they're finding stuff over and over right aren't they finding like more viruses now too in the oceans like we don't think of
2: Uh you know, it just it goes to show the more we learn, the more we realize we actually don't know how things yeah.
1: work.
0: I think yeah. that about sums it up right there, right? <laughs> the more yeah. we know, the the less we actually know. And I think throughout sciences have proved that. So it just, it leads to more questions. So it's, that idea is kind of like, if you think of, you drop a, a piece of knowledge, yeah, like a stone in the middle of a, a lake. Ripple grows bigger and bigger. Those are like the more questions that like we don't know and that we're asking. Yeah. So are, we know more, but we actually are finding out that we know less. Yeah. It's cool. Okay, so uh, we're, as we, I think we actually hit most of our talking points today so i'm going to um
1: applaud us yeah
2: yay, us. I, it, hey. <laughs>
1: so can i can i bring up one last point that i thought was really cool and i think that it's so i wanted to say this word foraminifera <laughs> and that's a that's like you'll have like your ooids and stuff and your limestones but you can have particularly in like what the pennsylvanian and permian you have these organisms that are part of that but they're called tisalindus. And you can find these in Texas, but they're all over the rock. And so they're not rounded like your your ooids are. They're more like a football shape. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 But what's really cool about the forams is they can also tell you a lot about whether you're in cold or warm waters and if there was a change, because I guess they build their shells in certain directions based on the climate.
2: That That's true. Um, a certain species, pachydermia in I can't remember what to pronounce the end part,
1: neoglob, so, whatever.
2: Left <laughs> colder water and right in warmer water, I do believe. Yeah. But also the oxygen isotopes to get from those uh, shells. So when I was working on my dissertation, that was one of the things I, I worked mostly on, uh, recreating that climate through a climate model. And of course, oh, so much research. But at the time that I was finishing up the dissertation, some new research on forams from the Permian came out. And the temperature data that they had gotten from these forams matched our climate model. And let me tell you how excited we were. We were just so excited. <laughs> it's,
0: it's when science, ref, like, I mean, like someone did independent research and it confirmed what you were doing. So it. I get it. I'm sure that would be exciting AF. I'd be like, woo!
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, it is. amazing how much we have learned, but it's also humbling to know how much we still have to learn uh, about our own world. But that's what makes science so interesting, right?
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm. I'm in. I've admitted, like I. Never taken an oceanography class before, like up until I started teaching it. But I feel like I knew enough like background, but then it just affirmed like how much I really don't know about stuff. But it's yeah. I'm constantly reading and like just my I'm always fascinated. Like it's it, it never ceases to amaze me. And it and it can be the most like mundane subject, like looking at sediments. But I feel like if people just just stopped and just looked at it and just evaluated it for what it was, I mean, there's so much more that it, I mean, like, that's, I think what we've been getting yeah. at is, like, it, this, it's a bigger picture that we're looking at, and it, and it all ties together, and that's, yeah. it's, and, it, and it's a process, like, it, it takes a while, you have to keep reading at it, and it's, and some of it's not easy, or, nor is it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, it's a lot of it, intuitive, is, yeah, it's not intuitive, some of this stuff, I'm just like, what, 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 what? like, the manganese yeah. nodules, like, you're like, what, like, you should, we should figure yeah. out why there's manganese nodules in the middle of the ocean, but, <laughs> We're still like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But so that leads me to, I guess that will lead us into that freaking rocks. Our little. uh freaking just- rocks. That I'll get you over the, the, the sound wave. I, 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 yeah. I'm missing, I'm missing one uh, cable for my guitar. So I can't, they're all at the practice space. So I, I need to, oh, okay. for my, uh, to record it. Yeah. So Angela, you may or may not know, we both play in bands and we'd like to talk a little bit on music. That's what this whole segment is. It's to kind of uh, wind us down from the titillating conversations that, uh, <laughs> that we just had. So for each of y'all, so when y'all are studying or researching or reading what is your go-to music
2: for me it's it's usually electronic so i i I enjoy i enjoy instrumentals more than anything because voices i'm trying to concentrate are actually distracting for me so i usually play some electronics sometimes it's more chill sometimes it's you know I, i i need some energy it's more industrial type electronics so
0: that's kind of my go-to music right now man that how you, you probably yeah so I, i'm sure what uh that what you just said about the singing is much like when you had that research confirm what your yeah. climate model suggested angela yeah because he plays in an instrumental band
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and i'm always like your your music needs words
1: brian words brian. <laughs> yeah Wait, where's your singer that's a common thing
0: so where, what's your go-to music, Brian?
1: Um, so yes, I also listen to instrumental music when I study, like, mainly post-rock, so there, there's hints of electronic stuff in that, but it's mainly, like, your ambient to, like, all the way, like, on the other side of the spectrum, real heavy instrumental music. I don't really, I don't listen to people that sing usually now.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm on this, uh, uh, A Day to Remember kick. I know, but I remember oh, yeah. So, so yeah. like, uh, and, and I don't know if, if, if it's, like, ah. Uh... I don't know what it is, but it's like that perfect balance between uh, that that real heavy. Like it's not metal; it's like more it's melodic, hardcore, but, but yeah,
1: hardcore, yeah,
0: yeah. But then it also has like a, a good amount of like that pop punk. But I do remember. Mm-hmm. uh I don't know. I just I remember like clearly before like mineralogy or petrology tests or like I would, you know, like two hours before I'm like, I'm trying to amp myself up cause I'm like, God, there's just so much information that I need to like cram and throw into this. And, but it was I always, I'm, I don't know when I'm studying, I find to listen to like really like heavy, aggressive music. Cause it, I don't know, puts me in the mindset of, uh, I don't know. It gets me excited.
1: Well, that makes sense. I mean, um, like metal, like post metal, a lot of the, like how they construct the songs and even the instrumentation and the rhythms are closely tied to classical stuff, even Baroque music. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense because that stuff allows your brain to, I guess, it fires quicker. And so it makes sense that you would do that. Maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Or I'll just listen to the, the, the classical music. I'm, or I'll tell you, my guilty pleasure when it comes to like studying and listening stuff is the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> oh. Like I, 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 I know a lot of, So the when it comes to the Phantom of the Opera, any time that it comes to town, James Hobbs is at that show. <laughs> Whether it's at Bass Hall or down in, in Fort Worth, I don't know what it is. But yeah. it's like my guilty pleasure. is like, oh, I'm going to listen to uh, the Fan of the Opera. And I'll shamelessly <laughs> sing it too in the shower. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, lastly, to wrap things up, uh, gun to your head, what is your favorite band or song? Oh,
2: uh, well, uh, that's a tough one. So, um I, I, I'm in kind of embarrassed to admit, because my husband hassles me about this all the time, I'm not very good at remembering groups. I you know, like a song, and I'll listen to it, but I won't necessarily catch the group name. But I do have to say, back in my younger days, and I'm going to age myself, the Scorpions were my all-time favorite. So. No,
0: is, no, okay, I was about to say, is that the one with the one arm? but that's uh, Def Leppard, the one arm drummer. Uh,
2: no, that was Def Leppard. Yeah. Scorpions songs like rocky like a hurricane Rocky's but I liked like their, a, their- hurricane. <laughs> 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 I have a metal band yeah um, saw them in concert several times and just really enjoyed them yeah that was that would have to be my all-time favorite and I think my favorite song from them was actually a title of their album as well as animal magnetism
0: animal what, magnetism
1: what a cool title <laughs> <Yeah. Wow>. Mag- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh i get it. there's like that attraction i get it that's that's awesome i, re- I really like that name all right brian hey, it was good, what's yeah. mine uh oh, can, can i guess gosh. for you can i guess for you go ahead favorite, go ahead. favorite band yeah thrice
1: uh, you know what i'm gonna choose someone else today okay no i'm not <laughs> <My> favorite, <band. laughs> favorite song by thrice is probably um Strangely, it's off their latest record, which is very unusual. I Usually, like the earlier albums, fans put out, but uh, it's called "Beyond the Pines." It's real chill. It was written off off a roomy poem. It's just pretty insightful. Uh, I don't know. It's called "Beyond the Pines," and I like mountains, so there you go.
0: <laughs> what better reason do you need?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so
0: I I feel like I'm like you, Angela. Well, I'm not. I'm like in the fact that it's really hard because I feel like there's different parts of me that are I'm like oh I uh, uh, there's different parts of me so like the 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 younger I feel like when I say this is like the young me is my favorite band was Weezer and I have a tattoo of uh only in dreams from their blue album so that was uh that oh, yeah so the when it comes to Weezer though I only like their first two albums uh it's very like snobbish I'm just like anything past Pinkerton no way do not like it but then uh, I guess more in tune with my musical likings. Now I, I guess my favorite band song combination would be Pierce the veil and it would be a song for Isabel. So uh, that's, that's basically, that's basically it.
1: So that band's awesome. Cause they, you go to their shows, they are like moving around. I'm like, how are you still playing your instrument? You know, I mean, I, I go a little crazy on stage, but if I did that stuff, I might as well just not have a guitar up there. Like a cardboard insert would suit me better.
0: Dude, and they and they sound just like their albums. Like their bassist. Yeah. I, I was at their last show that, that when they came to town, and I, I'll I'll show you the video next time I'm around you. But dude, I'm like, yeah. How do you how do you play and do that at the same time? No idea, because I can hardly like play normally. <laughs> like, <laughs> So, okay, so that's going to end it. I would like a another thank you very much, Dr. Angela Oson. You've been, yes, uh, guess, you. a mentor for me in my navigations at TCC Teaching. So uh, not only thank you for this, but thank you for all you've done in helping me become the geology teacher that I am today.
2: Well, thanks for having me, James. And, and uh, I'm a little embarrassed by all those compliments, but I want to say that you inspire me to come up with some new ideas. You're very creative and, and thank you for that because kind of awakened a little bit of creativity in myself. So, thanks for having me tonight.
0: Oh yeah, fun. so we'll hope you have you on on more episodes, and I guess I will. Any, you want to close it out, Brian? This time,
1: sure. Um, I did want to say thanks to you both because I feel like I was a student on this <laughs> this particular <laughs> episode. I know nothing about oceanography, so this was really insightful. Um, but yeah, that is another episode done for Geology on the Rock. Geology on the Rock. Goodbye.
2: great working with you. Woo! Woo.
0: Don't, don't, don't. This, until we get something better, it's gonna be this. Yeah. <laughs>